0: Now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. Okay, well, good evening, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. I'll have more to say about that as we go on throughout this program. I am Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me, or if you would like to leave me your comments about today's or other shows, I'd like you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. That's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And if you would like to call in and to be part of the show, I'll be taking your calls after the break. But that number is 888 888- Six two seven six zero zero eight. That's eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. And just in case you cannot spend the full hour with me tonight, no worries. These broadcasts are recorded and saved in case you want to go back and listen to them again, or which you can go back into the archives and uh, listen to previous shows. Or if there's another show that uh, grabs your interest, you know, invite you to do that. Just go on the website and scroll down a little bit, and you'll see the archives button. Just click on that and then find the show that you would like to listen to. And also these shows are broadcast uh, they are available on Audible and Amazon Music. Well, welcome to the month of March. Here we are, March 1st. Unbelievable how fast this year is already going. I mean, I know that we had a January. I know that we had a February. But I guess when I turned the calendar, you know, this morning and I'm like, oh, my gosh, March 1st, that that's when it really hit me. But then as I was studying the calendar, you know, closer, it's like March is one of those months that has just a variety of special days in it. You know, for example, there is the the Feast of Purim on the 7th, people of the Jewish faith. There is the celebration of Ali, uh, people of the Hindu faith. There's the ever-popular Daylight Savings Time, where this time we will be turning the clocks ahead. That's going on on the 12th, so people are already, you know, at least on my end, grumbling about that, that they're going to already lose an hour of sleep. But then there is St. Patrick's Day on the 17th, which gets everybody going, and I believe the 17th is on a Friday, so it's going to make for an interesting weekend, no doubt. And then Mother's Day in the UK is celebrated on the 19th. Not our Mother's Day that is here in the States, but the United Kingdom's Mother's Day is celebrated on March 19th. And then right on the heels of that, we have the spring equinox on the 20th, and then of course the first day of spring on the 21st, and then Ramadan begins on the 23rd, and of course... My wife's birthday is on the 29th, and I will not forget that. In fact, I've never forgotten that. It's always been etched in the memory of my mind. My wife's birthday, always, March 29th. Well, for those of you who are tuning in for the very first time, I just want to say just welcome to the broadcast. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're listening. I appreciate it and all the more reason to send me your comments and let me know like what you liked about the show. And if you have a particular uh, a topic of interest that you would like to hear me talk about, um, please drop me a line about that and i just want to start off as i do with every show just say that each and every one of these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of spirituality and our mental health and this is very intentional this is very intentional because i i truly believe that this integration piece is so important for us because ours is a world full of relationships I, I was talking to a number of people today, <clears throat> and we got on the subject of relationships and how we're simply born into relationships. You know, the family, or we have a relationship with our our, our caregiver, our mom, or our dad, or whoever is taking care of us, and we automatically start to establish uh, relationships. Okay, and as we get older, our world tends to grow and uh, we become more invested in relationships. And we kind of get a glimpse of our worldview that's starting to form in us, you know, but it's all coming through relationships. And so this, like I said, this integration of spirituality and our mental health is uh, very, very important because of relationships. Or as the English poet, John Dunne once said, no man is an island, and indeed, we are social beings who often spend our lives trying to make sense of our world by trying to find our place in the world. You know, where do we fit? With whom do we fit? Are there people of like-mindedness? Or are there people of like-heartedness? Do we have uh, things in common with them, and what then do we do with our relationships when we find people that we don't really have anything in common with and how do we handle the that diversity those differences and so forth and uh, you know by trying to find our place in the world and to make sense of the world we do this you know as we are connected to one another and we we share this connection to one and all through every thought word and every deed I think that's something that uh, we're often not aware of or we often don't spend a lot of time just uh, meditating on that. And and what does that mean that we are we are so connected with all things through every thought, word and deed so that every thought that goes out has an effect on somebody somewhere. And every word that we speak uh, goes out and has an effect on others and everything that we do has an effect on somebody else, as well as because we live in an echo, so to speak, every thought, every word, every deed comes out of us, will return to us in some form or another. So as social beings, you know, it's often within the context of these relationships that we experience at times, at times, tremendous pain and suffering. And these could be anything from just overt acts of betrayal or cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us, or vice versa, to simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And as a result, many people now carry the scars of the physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual woundedness. And as I'm going to be talking about in this show, is basically how we go about healing from those wounds. And how then do we start to tell our life stories differently? I mean, are we going to tell our life stories from a place of that woundedness in us or a place of disappointment? And depending on how long we've been carrying, you know, a brokenness around in us, we might even tell our stories, our life stories from that deeper place of bitterness. And yet, ironically, just as we experience that kind of woundedness in relationships, it's also within the context of healthier relationships that we can find our healing. We can find our voice. We can find our authenticity. And certainly our relationships will be different. And you know, today, the challenge then is for us to find the courage to discover that which has always been in us. You know, those gifts, those graces, those skills, that uniqueness that we've come into the world with, or as a Scottish Franciscan, John Duns Scotus said, acceitas, it's this thisness that you and I have, and it does take tremendous courage to reclaim who we are. And we can reclaim our voice, our uniqueness, our thisness. We can discover that there is so much more to us than what we have become so far. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is what reclaiming authenticity is all about. Having then the courage to be able to reclaim those things, those things that have always been in us. And again, as I said earlier, I'll be taking your calls in the second half of the show tonight, and and I encourage you to call into the show because I would like to get your perspective on tonight's subject. It takes more than superglue to close the wounds of disenfranchisement. Now, speaking of superglue, uh, many Many years ago, maybe you've seen this commercial, but there used to be this kind of cheesy commercial used to promote the unique features and unbelievable strength of super glue, or I think back in the day it was called crazy glue, same thing. Okay, And if you recall that particular commercial, you know, remember the construction worker who superglued his hard hat to uh, a board and then he superglued it to uh, a beam he was working on and then he just simply hung from it and it held his weight and it was very impressive to say the least. Now, from applying this adhesive to fixing chipped lamps and super glue, you know, its uses are numerous. I know children and teenagers out there who have used super glue to fix a broken vase or a broken handle on a favorite coffee cup or even fixing, you know, a chipped sentimental knickknack, so that mom would, you know, be none the wiser. And yes, super glue is indeed a household name, and it is a trusted product. So yes, kids, teenagers, and clumsy husbands swear by it. And today, we have other adhesive products such as, you know, Gorilla Glue, that's what we use in our house, and uh, also a liquid stitch glue for sealing cuts. And of course, when in doubt, there's always duct tape. Mm -hmm. We have many products that can put back together things that have been broken or ripped apart. And we have come to believe that these adhesives, uh, adhesives, there we go, can repair almost everything in our lives. Almost, that is. I mean, no amount of adhesive, liquid or otherwise, can heal these psychological, emotional, physical, and spiritual wounds, let alone close the wounds of seclusion, isolation, and disenfranchisement many people are forced to live as a result of their woundedness. But you know, ironically, uh, disenfranchisement not only happens to, let's say, a discredited person with an unacceptable condition or a certain socioeconomic status or an illness, but can also involve those who are close to the stigmatized individual. In other words, loved ones, friends, neighbors, acquaintances can also find themselves being disenfranchised. And again, you know I'm a lover of history, so all we have to do is go back into the annals of history and we realize <clears throat> How history is strewn with one example after another of this kind of behavior. In fact, I think what also occurs is for lack of a better phrase, you know, a guilt by association is this kind of judgment being rendered on loved ones or friends or caregivers, and it can even extend to those who offer their services as volunteers, the people who are disenfranchised. So it seems that, you know, while the symptoms of, let's say, socially stigmatized woundedness, okay, that's a mouthful, may remain less discernible for longer periods, as especially medical expertise is ad- advanced in procedures and so forth, the, the brush that marks a person and societies with stigma sweeps a much wider area. In other words... People living with and in stigmatized conditions are not the only ones confronting social isolation. Because, again, throughout history, uh, certain diseases even carried a social stigma and have often struck fear and contempt into the hearts and lives of people all around the world. And whether it was leprosy in early biblical times or tuberculosis in ancient Greece or the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, or the acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS in the late 20th century, and even COVID in the 21st century, societies have displayed a a pattern of, more often than not, purposefully disenfranchising people who have contracted these diseases or find themselves in a certain condition that is so outside the so-called norm of society's comfort zone well initially this reaction you know back down through history was justified this isolation this disenfranchisement was you know justified as necessary in order to prevent the further spread of let's say communicable diseases Okay, I get that. However, many afflicted people interpreted being quarantined as society's way of displaying contempt for its sick. And as a result, many felt stigmatized by their illnesses or they were shunned and they were alienated from fully participating in their communities as persons of value and worth. You know, there's a great book out there. I don't know if you've ever heard this title or not. It was written by Irving Goffman back in 1963. And it's just simply called Stigma, the Notes on the Management of Spoiled Identity. Stigma, Notes on the Management of Spoiled Identity. And in this book, Goffman writes that the ancient Greeks originated this term stigma, which referred to bodily signs that were designed to expose something, something unusual and negative about the moral status of the person. And these signs um, were imposed by society. Often they were cut or burned into a person's body, advertising the person's condition. That is, were they a slave? Were they a criminal? Were they a traitor? Did they steal? You know, and so on and so forth. And uh, as a result of this act of branding, it signified to all that the recipient of such a brand was a blemished person, or they were ritually polluted, and they were to be avoided, especially in public places. Such markings not only spoiled a person's social identity, but also cut off that person from society and thus forcing him or her to live in isolation in a very unaccepting world. And from this aspect, this perspective, it it appeared as though there was no way to remove this outward sign, let alone recover from the emotional wounding from such harsh treatment. Yet this wasn't always the case. But let's bring it into contemporary life, shall we? Today, not all the signs of a socially intolerable woundedness are immediately visible. Some people hide it very well. Some people hide it so well that nobody around them could tell that something's going on, but they do not feel safe sharing it with anybody. Yet, once a condition is disclosed, society's overall contempt for what is deemed as unacceptable behavior or a flawed character, it reduces that person from a whole and unique individual to a tainted, discredited one. Okay, let's go back to the thisness, the hacheatos. It's totally dismissed in a person. You do that enough times, and then the person who is so called discredited starts to believe that there is nothing special about them, that they do not have value, dignity, and worth, that there is no such thing as their own thisness, which is simply not the case. But this all comes from society. It's initiated by society's uncomfortableness. Where, how about out of sight, out of mind? Well, In my own research, my own studies that I have done, this mark of marginalization, shall we say, can extend even beyond death. Even to those who mourn the death of a loved one, let's say from a stigmatized disease. And because of their association with the deceased, survivors feel as though they just simply cannot express their grief openly but are forced to hide their feelings, thus making the painful process of mourning even more intense. And this is what's referred to as disenfranchised grief. I mean, they too may view themselves as being branded by society, just simply because they loved another human being whom society has discredited. Now, in the context of grief and bereavement, um, Ken Doka, who I met up in the College of New Rochelle, New York, right there in the Bronx, a wonderful man, long since passed, uh, I think. And um, anyway, we sat down and we talked about disenfranchised grief, and uh, he just pretty much shared his heart with me. And uh, he notes that there are specific losses that present a double bind, in other words, While most people who mourn the loss of a loved one are just free to experience the normal grief reactions and working through them as as they can, others whose loved ones carry a social stigma are not given the right or the role or the perceived capacity to grieve, as others may. And added to this, these mourners are usually given little or no social or religious support to help facilitate their grief. And this is the double bind. They experience loss and grief just like everybody else, but they're not allowed to express it. And their grief becomes layered and layered and layered. And a disenfranchisement widens and widens. It widens. Now, um, Ken Doka also shared with me that uh, the reason for this reaction by society as, you know, is something that arises either from one or more of the following factors. Um, he says that, you know, one, the relationship to the deceased is not recognized. That is, it's a non-traditional relationship, maybe it because it wasn't based on traditional kin ties. Or two, the loss of is not recognized, or it's viewed by society as significant, such as the loss of a pet or perinatal death. Now, this is getting better. This, This second aspect where the loss is not recognized or viewed by society as significant, I have seen tremendous improvement in this area. You know, you just go to any place that sells sympathy cards and you're gonna start to see You know, sympathy cards related to the loss of a pet or the loss of uh, a baby. You know, so society is getting better. They're starting to understand the depth of the pain, the connection that loved ones have to their pets as well as their unborn children. The next, he says, that the survivor is perceived by society as not having the capacity to mourn, such as children or the very old, the elderly, or people who are mentally challenged. Again, this is coming from society. Not in, not all pockets of society, but sometimes, you know, society says, well, you know, children just simply won't understand, or the elderly are too feeble to understand. And I have to share with you, people, that I've seen one example after another where children simply know what's going on. And they want to be included the elderly they know on some level something is different a loved one has died or their partner has died their spouse has died they know they know on a different level but they know and then lastly there are certain types of death you know such as a suicide or even aids related which may be too embarrassing or produce heightened anxiety in members of society. And so, well, we just can't talk about that. And I remember the days in which, you know, um, cancer was often whispered. You know, like, in other words, if a loved one had died or, you know, a neighbor had died and, well, what did she die from? And then it was like, she died of cancer. It was whispered, almost as if it's contagious. Well, when I was doing my research that, suicide and AIDS-related deaths were treated in the same manner. Well, he died. He committed suicide. Or she died of AIDS. Again, there's this hush-hushness out there, which, because people are embarrassed or has this uh, heightened anxiety in certain members of society. Well, you know, in both AIDS and suicide, which is where I focus my studies, this stigma which it was imposed by society's discomfort is transferable to those who mourn the death of a loved one. Okay. Because throughout history, surviving loved ones of let's say a person who had completed a suicide, they were highly stigmatized. And as many witnessed the deceased loved one's body being dragged through the town or put on display in the town as objects of ridicule and shame. I mean, history wasn't shy in hiding any of that kind of behavior, and many bereaved families of you know, loved ones' suicide either had their land taken from them or they were forced to leave town. And places of worship would ban offering the sacrament of last rites to you know people who had committed suicide, and they would might even go so far as to refuse burial in sacred burial sites. Uh, But even to this day, suicide can often be the family secret, despite Western societies viewing suicide as now this complex phenomenon that is associated with psychological, biological, and social factors. Okay, So there are pockets in which it's getting better, but not clearly 100%. But you know, there has been uh, an interest arising out of Conversations I've been having with people over the last week or so. Um, Of course, there are typical concerns over people finding their meaning and purpose in life, as well as the day to day integration of their own mental health and spirituality. But these other conversations have been coming up around the subject of healing from woundedness and rebuilding one's faith and philosophical beliefs that have been shattered by a loss or misunderstandings, or faulty expectations, or distorted assumptions. What do we do with our assumptions? Well, I mentioned our faith and philosophical beliefs, because after a traumatic event, typically the last aspect of ourselves that heals are our beliefs that have been challenged or shattered by, let's say, a loss. And the reason for this is because we all have a set of beliefs, and we all have a set of behaviors that stem from how we see ourselves, how we see the world. They stem from our assumptions, preconceived notions, and so forth, where we grow up and we think, I thought things would be different, or I thought we could live happily ever after, or we thought traumatic events would only happen to other people, and so forth. And so these and other assumptions about the goodness in the world, or let's say even the goodness of God, or simply even our innocence often takes a long time to heal. Once we have gone through something that has challenged those belief, and still there is a lot of talk out there about people wanting to hold it together, you know, especially their emotions. And They want to hold together these assumptions and distorted memories that have been part of their lives for so long, it almost pains them to, I don't care what happened, I'm hanging on to this. Now, years ago, there was another great book written, I love these books, and this one was entitled, When Falling Apart Holds You Together. When Falling Apart Holds You Together. It's a short book and with basically, you know, one premise, that if you think that trying to hold it together works, you're only hurting yourself. The point being that if you allow yourself to fall apart, that is, let out your grief, let out your emotional pain, your psychological vulnerability, that you allow yourself to cry those tears and so forth, you will be better off and you will find more effective ways to heal. And trust me, your physical body will thank you. Now, it's not that we were told lies growing up, but rather I think the struggle in most people come from, uh, you know we try to fit our experiences with our beliefs and traditions, etc. We try to fit them together into a nice, neat little package. And many times, life simply doesn't work like that. In fact, when we seek to integrate our assumptions and beliefs and experiences, etc., sometimes we have to let go of those things which no longer serve us in order to take on something better, something more life-giving. And that's where our assumptions come in. Maybe we have to rethink things. Maybe we have to dig a little bit deeper for the truth. Maybe we have to ask ourselves some very tough questions. Maybe we have to make significant changes in our lives and so forth. But you know, there are times when we go through horrific experiences, such as being in the wrong place at the wrong time and um, we struggle let's say, by making the same mistakes, or we struggle with the bad habits and and, so forth, then that we've never properly dealt with and we've healed from, or maybe even we struggle to make sense out of our issues that have been handed down to us through our family line. Nevertheless, these issues and the pain that they entail often keep us from living the life that we want to live, as well as you know keeping the very best of ourselves from coming out and as a result we often live our lives from a place of woundedness and pain instead of a place of healing wholeness and love because as i said before ironically we often receive our deepest emotional psychological physical and spiritual wounds as a result of being in relationships with one another and whether or not the wounding was intentional or accidental it is what we do afterwards once we have been wounded or that we have wounded another person that will either reinforce those wounds or find a way to be healed and freed from those burdens so letting go of the past surrendering old assumptions and other negative thoughts that no longer serve us allows us to not only rewrite a new narrative for our lives but it also allows us to tap into our gifted uniqueness and discover who we really are as limitless souls. This is the irony of life. Because some of the poorest people in the world have turned out to be the richest givers. Some of the most uneducated people have turned out to be life's best teachers. And some of the most wounded people I have met have turned out to be some of the best healers because they recognize themselves as being more than what they have become so far. So after the break, let's continue this conversation and move away from our woundedness and move towards transforming these wounds into new life-giving ways of being. So again, if you would like to call in and be part of the discussion, the number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be back with you in one minute. Welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Now, before the break, I was talking about the subject of healing from woundedness and rebuilding our faith and philosophical beliefs that have been shattered or challenged by losses, misunderstandings, faulty expectations, and distorted assumptions and i mention our faith and philosophical beliefs because after a traumatic event typically the last part of ourselves that heals are our beliefs that have been shattered by such losses and the reason for this is because we all have a set of beliefs that we've grown up with or certain behaviors that stem from our assumptions and preconceived notions and, and so forth and we grow up with certain expectations that we thought the things would be a little bit different for us or we thought we could live happily ever after after hearing those uh, you know those nursery tales read to us or we thought traumatic events just happened to other people you know the people that we see on the news and 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 so these and other assumptions about the goodness in the world or the goodness of God or simply what's happening to our innocence often take a long time to heal once we've gone through something that has challenged those belief. And part of letting go of the past surrendering those old assumptions and other negative thoughts that no longer serve us. As I said, this allows us to not only rewrite a new narrative for our lives, but it also allows us to tap into our gifted uniqueness and discover who we really are as limitless souls. And you know, echoing this uh, sentiment, one of my teachers, uh, Joseph Rael, in a recently published work entitled Becoming Medicine, Pathways of Initiation into Living Spiritually, he writes, The way you become a medicine person is that you practice who you are because you are already medicine. Nobody gives it to you. You are already it. What a gift to yourself and the world when you realize you are already medicine for others. We just have to then work on clearing out everything that gets in the way of that medicine in terms of our own unresolved emotional, psychological, physical, and spiritual woundedness. Imagine you are already gifted. You just don't know it yet. Yet exactly who sees that potential in us? And what? why is it that we often struggle to see the potential in ourselves. Well, I'll share with you, I know exactly who sees that potential in us. And that is a teacher. Tell me I'm wrong, because I'm sure all of us can count on one hand the number of teachers we've had who have made a difference in our lives. You know, whether it was the way they taught us or the passion in which they interacted to their presence, great teachers, gurus, and leaders went beyond merely teaching facts and figures. Instead, making these, or I should say, what made these teachers, gurus, and leaders great was the way they exude this genuine wisdom that transformed into making our lives better whether it was in like a Western or an Eastern culture, effective teachers and leaders and mentors throughout history have been characterized by those who help pull out of others the very best of themselves. In fact, they help us to be healed and empowered to tell our stories differently. Great teachers have always been characterized by those who help pull out of us and others the very best of themselves. But you know, something that is being lost or at least downplayed in our society today is this special relationship between a teacher and a student or let's say a master and a disciple, because it is within this special relationship that is unlike any other relationship we might have with anyone else in this life. And I'm a solid believer that everything, you know, just involves an interaction that we have with other people. Everything. In other words, it all comes back to relationships again. So there is potential for wounding in relationships, and there's a potential for healing in relationships. So let's think back to the many teachers you've had in your life that made a difference in your life in one form or another. Teachers who may have abused their position and sought to control others through contained knowledge and privilege. And there may have been others who sought to empower and set others free with that knowledge. So there are teachers who reach us in a formal setting, such as a school or a college, a university, a trade school, a church, a synagogue or mosque. And then there are teachers who may have done their very best teaching outside the classroom, so to speak. Teachers who have shown up at just the right time in our lives in which we are ready to hear and be transformed by life lessons. You know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I mean, let's be honest. Teachers and leaders can only take us as far as they themselves have gone in terms of their own discovery, realization, and personal growth. And there are some teachers who have taken us just so far, and then they hand us off to another teacher who may take us a little bit farther, and so on and so on. I mean, you've heard me many times on this broadcast talking about a dear mentor, teacher, and friend who was the one who taught me so much about healing intergenerational trauma. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't only through his words and behaviors, but also how he was and how he is with me, his presence. And indeed, it is a very special relationship. And relationships are very important so the teacher the student the teacher the disciple the guru the student these relationships are all very unique and a teacher mentor guru also assumes tremendous responsibility for the student for not just what is being taught but also how the student is mentored But, you know, there is a tremendous shift going on in the world today regarding such relationships. You know, I I believe the different ways in which people have been exposed to controlling oppressive ways in the past, and how people are becoming more resistant to that kind of misuse of power. People are just simply not putting up with it anymore. And this is one of the distinct characteristics I mentioned weeks ago about, a, a you know, being a teacher in name only, and one who has done and is doing their own work because a teacher or a leader in name only who says do it my way is only doing it because they more likely just want to seek to control they seek to manipulate or they seek to work through a student to advance their own agenda which is also very oppressive it's almost like a a cookie cutter mentality isn't it that you have to come out a certain way that does not allow for freedom of integration. But you know, a teacher, a leader, a guru, who has done their work and is doing their own inner work, who teaches through lived experiences, is one who is tremendously valuable because they seek not only to impart knowledge, but more importantly, they seek to impart wisdom through their own lived experiences, their shared experiences, which involves their own struggles, which involves their own joys and sorrows and involves their life in a way that is their, their transparent. And it's experienced through their humility and honor. And it is the wise student or students who listen to that, who understand, that they can see, they can read, they can hear, they can feel it with their heart. What is, that what is being shared is authentic. That what is being shared and who is sharing is genuine. Because again, an authentic teacher, an authentic leader or a mentor never seeks to control. They always look to empower. And they always look for that potential for the student or the mentee to be empowered, to integrate their truth and live it out for themselves. In fact, the the most effective teachers are ones who bring out the best in us and even points us in the direction of, you know, to where we must do our own work in terms of integrating forgiveness and gratitude and love. You know, the really inner work that takes us deep, deep, deep within. And, and this is what thousands of great leaders and teachers have done for centuries. You know, someone as Martin Luther King Jr., who was one who not only spoke from the pulpit or the podium, but also was one who came down and marched with the people. And there's a reason why these great teachers are able to do this, because they will not allow others to settle for mediocrity. Even if there is resistance on the part of the student, you know, they're they're patient, knowing that everyone is on his or her own path, his or her own spiritual journey. Because, you know, everyone arrives at their truth sooner or later. And instead, effective teachers and mentors and leaders empower others to discover greatness in themselves and greatness in others. They pull it out of us and effective teachers, mentors, and leaders never, ever seek to control others. Instead, they seek to release and hope that we have the courage then to embrace that freedom. Great leaders, mentors, and, and, and teachers, they can do this because they themselves have discovered how to live in forgiveness and gratitude and love on a daily basis. Let me give you a little exercise here. You know, if you have something to write down a little pen, piece of paper or something, um, so to give you a little exercise in looking for three specific things in leaders, teachers, and gurus. Okay. Ask yourself these questions, how have they integrated and been transformed by forgiveness, gratitude, and love? How have they integrated and been transformed by forgiveness, gratitude, and love? I mean, that should tell you everything you need to know about whether or not, you know, the they seek to control others or they seek to empower others. You know, sometimes we find an effective teacher, a mentor, and a leader, and we often become complacent, believing that all we need to do is just hang around them and ask for one blessing after another. Well, let's not kid ourselves. We have to do our own spiritual inner work in terms of cultivating our own forgiveness, our own gratitude and our love into our daily life. We too have a responsibility to be open and teachable. And down through the centuries, traditional or let's say the ancient teachers viewed students as a tabla rasa, a blank slate, upon which to record knowledge. And students were often looked at as empty vessels to be filled with facts and figures, or to put it another way, to have that childlike faith and to approach the things of God and inner truth that lie within the soul with a humility, trust, and faith that is simple and pure. Again, we too have a responsibility to be open and teachable. We have to prepare ourselves to receive and to accept the fact that, uh, you know, we just we didn't know what we didn't know, and we don't know what we don't know, and therefore, you know, to empty ourselves of the notion that that uh, we don't have everything figured out, and and in that realization, yield ourselves to be taught. I mean, we do have to listen to our teachers and gurus and mentors and you know and leaders, not to what they are saying. And and hear me when I say this, you know, not to so much listen to what they are saying, although very important, but also let's also pay attention to their method of how do they impart that truth. And oftentimes the most effective means of teaching come from people who are great storytellers, not BSers, but who are great storytellers. You know, from plots and, and analogies and irony, storytellers have shared this ancient wisdom that has ignited powerful transformation in those who have ears to hear, so to speak. <clears throat> and nothing touches our hearts as when a great teacher shares a story. You yeah, know, think about it. A person starts in on a story and, like, all the ears perk up. And do not just, you know, want to hear the story to be entertained, but you're always looking for, listening for that deeper, deeper truth, that wisdom. Storytelling is one of the most basic yet powerful means of imparting truth. Because we take in those stories, not necessarily through our ears, but mainly in our hearts. Because it's in those moments that we often feel whereby the moral of the story has reached in, grabbed us by the soul, and never lets go. And a childlike faith, being open and teachable, allows us to do this. Well, a little while ago I was talking about how a teacher, or leader, a guru has done their work, uh, teaches through lived experiences, is one who is tremendously valuable, because they not only seek to impart knowledge, but more importantly, they seek to impart wisdom. How have they lived their lives? What mistakes have they made? How have they learned to trust their own inner voice? How have they learned to trust God? How have they lived in community? How have they shared experiences? You see, they they share their own struggles. They share their own joys and sorrows and and they shared in a way in which we see their lives as transparent. And the wise student takes all of that in. All of that in. So, in fact, even if a leader or a teacher had been killed for imparting truth, as, well, as again, we just have to look at history, the wisdom contained within can never be silenced because it lies within the soul. Which now brings us to an interesting question. How differently would we live our lives if we fully realized ourselves as souls? How differently would we live our lives if we fully realized ourselves as souls? Because that is perhaps what the teacher, guru, and leader, understands about us. They see us as a soul. But how differently would we live our lives if we were able to do the same? If we were able to see ourselves as a soul, let alone see the souls of others. I imagine that our lives, our world would look a lot different than what it appears to be at the present moment. I also suspect that it would be, you know, we would be so empowered to treat ourselves in all relationships, with the fullest extent of kindness, love and patience, compassion and grace, then the world would definitely sit up and take notice. To you, it is possible that the teachers in our lives who had a tremendous impact on us, saw more in us, see more in us, than what we have yet to realize. I'm Dr. James Houck and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Thank you for spending this hour with me. Again, if you have any comments about uh, tonight's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. And you'll see the section when you get on that, that webpage where you can leave your comments. And I certainly do read them and I really appreciate them. So. Until next time, may everybody be safe, may everybody behave themselves, and may God hold all of us in the palm of God's hands. Take care. Good night. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding around to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific, on PBS Radio TV.